Hello and Happy New Year. Welcome to issue 23 of Scout and Birdie Renewal. I'm Jennifer Keel, and this month I am flying solo as my friend and co-host Anna Wolf is away on holiday in Pittsburgh right now. When Anna and I were brainstorming ideas of how we wanted to kick off 2019, we came up with the theme renewal. And what we were looking for with that theme is really a clean start to the new year. The feeling of entering something with fresh eyes and openness and this sense of growth and forward motion that we're all seeking in the new year. When we were talking with Vince, who is one of the wonderful artists on this issue, we were telling him that we love pieces with a moral or a message, something that causes you to think or provokes change or a certain sense of approaching a certain aspect of your life with more intentionality. And this issue really achieves that. It is all about imagining life with more complexity and the vigor that brings to our lives going forward. And I am so thrilled to be sharing it with all of you at home. So with that, please enjoy Issue 23, Renewal. First up in the issue is B.J. Tyndall. B.J. is a wonderful playwright and poet who was in a playwriting cohort with Anna, and we are so excited to be sharing their work with all of you for the first time. So please enjoy B.J.'s poem, Love in the Next Way I Am Asking for It. In 2015, I wrote, Love poems are my best kept secrets because I do not write them. In 2018, it's a Sunday and I am writing a love poem and I want to write myself into a sunny meadow, want to write myself into lavender, into slow motion lavender, satin, sepia tone, montage violin and my own brown fingers holding me gentle, a poem that'll make me melt. But I hate writing love poems and I hate Sundays. It's a Sunday, and I am writing a love poem. And love poem says, choose love over fear. Love poem says, do not be ashamed of the way you love. Love poem says, be soft with yourself. In 2019, it's a Sunday, and I am writing a love poem, and I tell love poem to shut the fuck up. Say, I'm talking now. And I say, my hands are not soft. I say I've never had soft hands. I say always cuts and scratches and scabs and blood and black. And black has always been heaven, but never soft. I hold it anyway, just like my hands. Now look how whole I am because of it. Look how between the itch and the sandpaper, my fingers strangle one another into clasped hands. Because this is how we write letters to God, with me holding on tightly to myself. It's a Sunday, and I do not let a love poem speak for me. 
It's a Sunday, and today I speak for me, and I say fear first. I say fear is family too. I have invited fear in for tea. Instead of treating them like a Jehovah's Witness, instead of shutting the blinds, instead of hiding under the furniture, instead of changing my address, we sit and sip slowly without burning our tongues. It's a Sunday, and I have stopped judging my mouth. I say I eat as many trolley worms as I damn well please. I say list no men anywhere, not by name, not by metaphor. I say place trolley worms in the spaces they tell you men are supposed to be. And I lay a toothbrush, floss, and my mouth guard next to each bushel because I love candy, but I hate root canals. It's a Sunday, and I say I am five. I am mama, and mommy, and mother, and princess, and fixer, and watchtower, and pink ranger, and leader, and in charge. It's a Sunday, and I say I am five, and I'm black boy joy. I'm ninjas, and keyblades, and brother, and brother, and grandpa, and backwards hat for when shit gets serious. It's a Sunday, and my gender is a newborn. I am almost as powerful as I was when I was five. I am my most master when I am my most child. I see life in living color again when I let my hands be tiny, when I let my arms be small. Because I am almost strong enough to make me into anything I want to be, just because I drew a picture of it. I am almost strong enough to make me into anything, just because I say so. Just because Kingdom Hearts music plays in the background, and every day looks like this. Like me in a thousand faces. It's a Sunday, and I am all I need, I am all I need, I am all I need, and I want so fucking much. And I cackle at how gorgeous I am, knowing I can want all I want because I do not need anything more than what I already have. It's a Sunday, and I tear up a piece of paper for the fourth Sunday in a row. I am the best love poem I've ever written, and I say I'm not ready. I say I'm so blessed and I'm so scared and that is a poem worth blushing over just because I said so. All right, we're here with Kaylin Hope Bennett. You'll remember Kaylin from our Sunburnt issue, and we are so excited to have her back with her song, Going Nowhere. Welcome, Kaylin. Thanks for having me. <laughs> We're so glad you're back, Kaylin. <laughs> yeah, I'm stoked to be here, guys. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the new album you're working on, Loving and Losing. Yeah, so we just finished laying everything down. I can see the finish line. It's like man, it's so like brutally close. It's like one of those things where I'm so anxious to have it done, but um, we're in the final phases of mixing right now and then it'll be off to master and then it'll be ready um, in the early new year. So exciting. And you're getting this teaser of a live concert with you here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And me solo because the the whole record's with the full band. So this is kind of a rare, rare occurrence, me just playing solo so (laughs) yeah tell us a little bit about the process of recording the album and what that was like for you well it was kind of a a weird two-stage process because the first two days I did an electrical audio and I had a full backing band um that they were like my band they were called the Hellcats and they were they were great um but throughout making the record loving and losing the band broke up just for a multitude of reasons 
which, you know, I was so bummed at the time it happened, but in hindsight, it's 2020, and um, my second half of recording the record was with a full, different backing band of just friends that were just the most incredible musicians you've ever met in the city, and they just wanted to help me out for the sake of helping me out, and we we did one last just <laughs> brutal 14, 16-hour day, something ridiculous at Jam Deck, and finished the record, and... It, it was a really interesting process because the first couple of days where, you know, I had these people that were in my band, you know, chewing in my ear, like the song should go this way, the song should go that way. And, you know, through mixing and through making the rest of the record, it was like, no, this is my record and I'm going to do what I want. And if I don't like it, it's not going on the record. And mm -hmm. I cut a lot. I changed a lot in the studio. I was like, that's not happening. And I was, it was a totally like 180 from where I started, which was trusting the thoughts of others to like becoming that producer musician in my studio so you were telling us before about all of the emotions that have gone into creating this album and it sounds like such an empowering experience to be taking like these emotions of loving and losing and to being able to bring it into this thing that you are producing on your own and having this empowering experience with yeah it gosh yeah I I think I'm I'm one that I love so ferociously and with so much of my whole heart that I think losing just sucks. And like the song I wrote that I'm playing is going nowhere. And I wrote that after the band broke up. I mean, so much was happening in my life where I was in a job I didn't like anymore. My mom was getting a divorce. My dad was having problems. Then the band broke up and then it, it was just everything. Oh, and then both of my best friends moved away. It was just like, I didn't know can I cuss on this? Yeah. I don't know what the fuck I was going on. And so I, I wrote the song. This is the last song I wrote for the record, Going Nowhere, which was just like expressing all that frustration. And it fits stupidly well with the theme of loving and losing, which is about a relationship ending or a connection, whatever. And then unfortunately me losing my grandma to brain cancer. And, um, and then this, this shit storm happened. And then I was like, well, I'm going to write this song about going nowhere and feeling like, I'm trying my damnedest and I, I want this so bad with everything in me, but I don't know. I, I don't know what to do anymore. And like I was telling you guys before, the minute I wrote the song, everything changed. The minute I let those emotions out, it, everything in my life changed and everything started working out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's incredible to hear about those kind of moments where you kind of like everything just has to burn down oh, it was in order to, to really rebuild and find this whole new avenue that you're going down to really flourish and be your best. And that's totally what it was. It's like the tower came down. I had to rebuild everything in my life. And I, you know, I, I got a new job. I had a new band. I had to figure out the studio by myself, family stuff, love stuff, personal stuff. It was bullshit. But like I, like I was saying, hindsight's twenty twenty, and everything happens for a reason. And like being on the renewal issue, it's like I think you have to have those moments of great frustration and those moments of great heartache and those moments of what the fuck am I doing? I want to bang my head in because I'm trying so hard and nothing's happening to get those moments of like you flip the coin and you're like, oh, everything worked out and I'm a big old dumb dumb. Mm. <laughs> everything's fine. <laughs> You have to go through all of that to get to that cathartic moment. And I mean, I think it really shows in this song. And as we were listening to you play this song live, it, there's just like a really raw energy to it of like 
force and power and it, it just it just takes you back a little bit. Oh, thank good. you. <laughs> you can feel like the energy and momentum building in the song until the point that you sort of it feels like you get to that breaking point in the mm-hmm. song of yeah. this like cathartic moment of where almost the, the lines I'm going nowhere like feels almost empowering to a certain aspect of like you're like admitting it and like once you admit it you can sort of start the work of repairing and renewal. That's exactly what happened. Like I, I remember sitting in my in my office writing this song and I remember just like being in tears, like throwing my hands up in the air, just going like, I'm done. Like I, I just can't, the, the line is, um, breathe into the still of my soul, uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, I can't keep going at this pace. And when I wrote that line, which you guys will hear in the song, um, it's loud and it's so much. And I just remember like, writing that in my journal and then singing it out. And I was just like, I can't, like, I could not keep doing, I could not be in that job anymore. I could not be without playing music anymore. I could not be where I was. And the minute I admitted that to myself, like I said, everything, I had three interviews the next week. I, I had people coming out of the woodworks to help me finish the record. I, you know, it, everything just changed. I don't, I, I don't know what, what magic that was, but it felt like magic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's such an exciting and empowering feeling. And we are so excited for everyone at home to hear it. And what better time to get to listen to your upcoming album and to listen to this live concert than in the new year when you get to be experiencing that renewal on your own? Yeah. 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 Look for a music video soon, too. Yeah, we'll share it with all of you. (laughs) (laughs) So everyone at home, please enjoy Kaylin's song, Going Nowhere. Thank you for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. (laughs) I've been dreaming again. I've been wishing again. I feel like I'm out of control. I've been waiting again I've been praying again All these fears are taking their toll You don't know what it means to me No, you don't know what this dream of dreams Cause it's everything Put the rest. 
Next up in the issue is Aviva Stein. Aviva is a wonderful writer who works with Anna, and I was so delighted to be introduced to Aviva's writing, which is this colorful, rhythmic fiction writing that is quite an adventure for your ears. And I am so excited for all of you to be introduced to it as well. So please enjoy Aviva's story, The One Golden Thing. could not have hoped for a better day than this particular day was turning out to be. Not only had our hero recently produced what he would consider, and you likely would too, to be the most perfectly warmed and proportioned bowl of porridge he had ever prepared, but his tea, he could feel, would soon be flawlessly steeped, and the spoon he had selected just the right degree of concave, and this morning would thereby culminate in what he could not see as anything but, in his experience, an immaculate breakfast." There was but one slight detail, and mind you, not a great one, as our hero was all too appreciative of his current lot. He really was. But there was one slight detail that was presently distracting our hero. The only slight bit of problem that was included in this otherwise altogether good morning was the murmur that had snuck under the crack in his window and was presently resting in the cradle of his ear after having traveled, it seemed, the not-so-great distance from the churchyard down the road. But our hero is not easily distraught, and despite the small fraction of bother that was currently swimming around his kitchen that was the hum of disgruntled-sounded somethings, from the direction of maybe the post office, a little closer now, 
he sat down in front of his bowl that was sure to be the most rewarding bowl in front of which he had ever sat. But as we all know, things so often go, and by this we mean that because nothing gold can stay, with his spoon unroute to his borrowed lips, a steaming scoop of porridge secured safely atop, our hero was startlingly interrupted by, in his opinion, the remarkably unnecessary kicking in of his front door, though he would have gladly opened the door had his guest simply knocked. However, our hero soon discovered his visitor to not just be one or even a few, but a bona fide swarm of some things that swiftly entered the cottage, some carrying torches sporting thirsty flames, others with work-worn rakes, and others still with clenched fists and furrowed brows, and all seeming quite bothered by and perhaps even unhappy about their current situation. Despite his neighbor's clear discontent, our hero could not help but suffer a slight peck of annoyance. He was ashamed to admit he would experience such a feeling in such presumably pleasant company, clearly in need of advice or a cup of sugar, but really, they could have knocked. Our hero sat as politely as he could, as the somethings presented a presumable listing of grievances. He asked himself, though he was pleased they had chosen to constructively address the complexities of life, why they had chosen to do so in his kitchen. But as the listing continued, and as fingers continued to be pointed in his direction, our hero began to suspect that, shockingly, it was he who was the subject of complaint. Before having ample time to consider this improbable suspicion, two of the larger somethings stepped forward, seemingly more disquieted than their companions, and in an admittedly skillful fashion, secured our hero, each of his arms grasped respectively by a calloused paw. Upon a smaller something's cry and the collective exodus from the house, our hero considered the possibility that his hopes for his porridge would not be fulfilled for quite some time. Participating in a village parade had not been in our hero's plans for this particular day, and as the crowd of somethings carried him along the dusty street upon which he had so often strolled in his past and first month of residence in this strange place, at a pace somewhat more brisk than he would have chosen to travel, if you asked him, though he knows you didn't, but if you had, our hero thought of breakfast. He supposed that perhaps this was a good thing, perhaps prolonging that which he was quite confident was to be the greatest meal he had ever consumed in a long while would cause it to be all the more rewarding when his dry mouth and the warm spoon met at long last. Though our hero attempted to imagine the gratifying first bite of porridge to which he was so looking forward, his thoughts were interrupted by the growing pools of sweat on his upper arms that surrounded the large something's fingers and were now quite uncomfortably dripping down the body he occupied. Before all this occurred, when our hero still lived in his first and truest home, he would make frequent visits to a pond shaped not unlike the salty puddles forming on his strange skin, where he and several others would communicate and entertain, among other things, but by far the most prevalent activity was laughter. Our hero cannot remember a time at which he felt more placid than when he soaked in that idyllic puddle, surrounded by those he had known for so much of time. But nothing gold can stay, and the light that illuminated those many moments spent at the pond eventually retired underneath the blanket of distant horizon. Though he and the others had waited, had hoped that light would wake and, refreshed, traverse the sky for what had felt like all of time again, such a moment never arrived. And so they left. And our hero would find himself, after much more time, in his current situation, 
allowing a gentle pleasure to settle over his mind as he remembered the days before the light finished its last trapes across horizons, before all this occurred. Resignedly and slightly begrudgingly, our hero adjusted his eyes and rejoined present company, which seemed to be greatly excited by the rapid approach to what appeared to be a factory of sort, their final destination. The upside-down L-shaped statues, from which loops of heavy and knotted rope swung in the late morning breeze, cast their shadows westward, carrying a horizontal welcome banner for the significantly large mass of somethings that was crossing the plaza's thresholds. It was only when our hero was rather rudely, he might say, pressed onto the platform on which the statue stood, that he recognized that he was not participating in an occasion, but was in fact the occasion itself. Our hero would be the first to confess that he was not one for attention. To be ogled, he felt, was to distract. And the very last thing he would ever want is for one to feel any obligation to him over one's own self. He believed this to be a reasonable enough trait. It did not appeal to him to consume any amount of another's time or energy that could be more productively spent on that for which they actually cared, as opposed to he, who was never more than a limnality, a passing thought to the rest of the universe. Our hero never spent more than what you would consider a year or so in any one locality, so why should anyone devote their energy to the transient concept that he was so content to remain? After all, he was only passing through, only looking for a place to reside until, maybe, he could return to the place of his memories. He therefore never truly mattered to those with whom he came into contact, which is not a problem, but a fact. And this is why he patiently reminded himself, as the somethings insisted on placing the twine-braided inverted necktie over the head he wore, this entire ordeal was likely all a big misunderstanding, and soon enough, he hoped, his presence would no longer be necessary, and our hero could return to his long-neglected porridge. Another large something, apparently in a position of power in this process, rested one foot on the cracked footstill upon which our hero stood, and orated what seemed to be some sort of narrative, although it was difficult to understand his words, and therefore our hero didn't, in all honesty, try that hard to follow them. He did catch that when there is a sickness in something or other, it is the society's responsibility to cure it. And though our hero agreed with that sentiment wholeheartedly, he respectfully did not understand why its expression required his public and pre-breakfast display. The something's words floated around our hero's heads while he thought of before, which was really so long ago by this point, he chided himself, it likely was not worth recalling as often as he did. But the time he had spent elsewhere and without the somethings was remarkably pleasant, and really, anyone would be challenged not to long for the solace of such a lovely once home, especially one who was in our hero's present situation of utter discomfort. He allowed the mildly unsettling image of the somethings perplexing faces staring greedily at the body inside which he had placed himself to fade into those of the faces he knew, the faces he cared for, the faces he understood. Where did those faces go? Did they disperse and settle in places similarly foreign to this, with somethings and by now sure to be cold porridge? Or did they traverse among something else's, inside bodies that did not look like these, with creatures who thought differently than those who, pulling him out of his reverie, had kicked the stool out from under his feet and thereby rendered our hero suspended by only his jowls, which, as you can imagine, was an unpleasant sensation indeed. Our hero stared at the somethings, 
and the somethings stared back. Time passed, they waited, and the somethings stared back. Eventually, our hero, though usually quite level-headed, had had just about enough of this, and though he was sorry for thinking it, truly considered the whole affair nonsense. He raised his hands to his neck, loosened the rope, wiggled his way out of the necklace, and dropped back to his feet. Though he considered this a fairly non-outrageous act, it appeared to greatly upset the somethings, some of whom were now screaming rather loudly, others running in the direction from which they came, and more still staring directly at him, eyes widened, as if he had proposed they wear their pants backwards, or, he didn't know, something nonsensical and entirely more remarkable than his action, which was entirely undeserving of the reaction that he was currently receiving. Our hero heaved a heavy sigh, and two somethings, different than the last time, again procured his upper arms, one for each, and again salty pools formed under their grasp as they purposefully babbled to the smaller groups of something that was following close, but not as close as before, our hero observed, behind. What was it about these things? Our hero had lived many places, and by many places we mean not three or a dozen, but more places than we can express in a simple word, more places than any reader will be able to even consider, so many places that we may as well and therefore will not try to quantify. Many places. Having traveled for so much time, our hero had met his share of natives and had his share of cultural miscommunication, but never before had our hero felt so pressured by the occupying species, never before had the inhabitants refused to simply leave him alone. And really, with one like our hero, who was perfectly content to let each and every one and thing be, simply and purely, he was hard to bother. Give me a bowl of porridge and a comfortable chair, that's all I need, he thought to himself, and subsequently confirmed, upon brief consideration, that this is indeed a fair request, especially for our hero, who never hurt anyone he never did. And after traveling for so long, he wanted nothing more than to be, which is a privilege he knew, but simple enough, he felt, to be without interruption. And just as our hero consoled himself in his tired mind, and because not even anything silver can stay, he felt a sharp sensation and lifted his hand to his chest, into which, when he removed his hand, fell a small and ironically silver cap. He turned to the something behind him, who was wielding the smoking tool that was the apparent source of the burnt cap, and returned its startled gaze. The trinket that now lay steaming in his hand had passed through what one would deem the back of our hero, and had projected through his front, leaving behind an imperfect hole, through which now a small blot of sun was allowed, and appeared in the center of his elongated shadow. He considered this and decided, based on the shrill noises of the somethings around him, that this was an abnormal act, though he could not determine if it was he or the projectionist at fault. Our hero, irked but relentlessly polite, held out his hand, offering the something his lost trinket. The something turned and ran, followed by a large portion of the mass, and our hero decided that he had had just about enough of this place, and that, once this ordeal completed and his porridge eaten, it would soon be time to leave. Apparently, the somethings were becoming frustrated as well, and they stormed with miniature shadows, the midday sun beating on the capped backs of their heads to a large pole, at the base of which rested several large blocks of decimated tree. 
Several something stood by, holding yet more rope, this time in a large coil resting in the plainly wet hands of the something, who seemed to be effectively boiling in the midday heat. It was no surprise to our hero when he found himself captive yet again within the confines of the rope. He and the pole found themselves closely bound, the twine creating ridges in the skin of our hero's flesh and leaving marks in the residual ash on the carved wood. Our hero released a heavy breath. The torch finished its downward arc at his feet, and the flame united with the pile of dry wood, and he closed his eyes and allowed himself to recall the time before all this occurred. Belly full and mouth still warm with the sweet taste of what turned out to be, after a quick pop in the fireplace, indeed the greatest bowl of porridge he had ever eaten, our hero placed his spoon down on the table and pushed his chair out just enough to recline, not gratuitously, but generously. After all, our hero did stand in front of the somethings for quite some time, and though at first it was hard to make out much beyond the flames, as the fire faded from red to orange to yellow, and though he usually avoided looking the somethings directly in the eye, that surrounding and piercing whiteness rather bothered him, unfortunately. He had let his foreign eyes scan from something to something, patiently waiting to go home. And once the fire had fled, leaving nothing but chalky black ash at his feet and coating the sky, it seemed the somethings had left with it, and not just the initial gathering, but the entire town had emptied. The rope lying indiscernible among the embers upon which our hero stood, which seemed a color copy of the twinkling night sky above, he had delicately stepped down from the pile, brushed off his then unclothed skin, and walked home. Now, after having dressed and fed himself, and the somethings having vanished, our hero was ready to rest. And as he pulled the wool cover to his chin, and his foreign body calmed in the warmth held underneath, he hoped that perhaps this slumber would finally be the one thing golden that would stay. Next up in the issue is Hannah Verdon. Hannah is a playwright who focuses on these really strong female characters and examines their lives through this incredibly unique lens. And we are so happy to be sharing Hannah's work with all of you for the first time with her monologue, Mary in the City. Giving birth at the underpass by 21st and Rockwell. My left foot is gripped to a stain on this couch. My left arm is using all of its strength to keep me stable. My head bucks back and I'm in pain. I hate this. I hate this, but I count my blessings and one, at least my bare ass is not on the concrete and Two, at least I am not writhing on top of shattered Seagram's and McDonald's cups. 
I know that some women are supposed to live through labor, but I know in my bones now, I am not one of those women. I am too weak. I am entirely too weak. This baby is separating from me and it will be the only thing that makes it out of this. How does a life pass through another life and they both live? This is impossible. I am on fire. I feel something rip. I feel blood. I resign myself to the fact that I will give my life for this. Something leaves me. My husband grabs the something and carries it away. Where is he going? God, where is he going? Is something wrong? Why is everything so quiet? Why am I cold now? I am halfway through a prayer. I ask that everything will turn out okay, but I stop myself. I do not know what okay is. Is this okay? Is this world okay for a child? These days, this world doesn't seem okay for me. What a cruel story. An unokay world and the millions that march into it unasked and unprepared. But is my baby okay? I tell my husband to go get help. Where, he says, he smacks the child and it sounds like Applause, go get help, where? Just go, where, where? A cry. Let me see. A boy. He cries. He cries so much. He cries and I know he is cold somehow. And now there are so many other things I know. I know that he is the most beautiful thing to have ever existed. And I know he is one tiny thing, and there are so many big, bad things, but he seems so much bigger somehow. I take him to my breast and he quiets. Suddenly, I know how to do this, too. I watch water trickle over the graffiti on the pillars, a plastic bag blows into the street. My body still protests from the last push. I rock him, and in my mind's eye, I see places I have been. Cold nights, dead ends, and dark stops. But here is this little boy, and his smile saves me. Next up in the digital issue is Roni Packer. Roni is an incredible visual artist and colorist who focuses on the relationship between painting, memory, and space. When you go on to scoutandbirdie.com, you will see a selection of Roni's installation, Yellow is Mine and Not My Yellow. These are incredible images of Roni's work, which in Not My Yellow includes 
raw canvas and latex paint layered in this beautifully vibrant way. And in Yellow is Mine includes this gorgeous display created out of mini croutons that creates this beautiful textured display. They are absolutely gorgeous. So be sure to go to scoutandbirdie.com and check out Roni Packer's wonderful work. You can also read about Roni's use of the color yellow and what inspired her to use it in her work. And last up in the issue, we have Vince Amlin. Vince is a wonderful writer who we were connected with by Gilead Chicago, which is this wonderful storytelling church that is run by our friend Rebecca Anderson and Vince. When Anna and I first received Vince's piece, we actually read it out loud together, and there was this lovely sense that this piece was exactly what we needed to hear, and it had us laughing and reflecting and just gave us this sense that there is always something that we could be striving for and examining and looking to better ourselves through. So we hope you experience the same joy that we did when we first encountered this piece. So please enjoy Trash Birds. One of the joys of birding is that each new destination offers the possibility of life birds, species you're seeing for the first time. Soon after I took up the hobby, my wife and I went to visit her grandmother in New Mexico. In anticipation, I borrowed a friend's Sibley field guide to birds of Western North America. Just flipping through started me dreaming. As I salivated at the thought of pillowy sopapillas piped with honey and burritos served Christmas style with both red and green chili, I also ogled pages full of birds I had never heard of, greedily making my list of targets. At the top was Gamble's quail. There are certain birds that, seeing them on the page, one can hardly believe they are real. The elegant trogon comes to mind, or the hooded merganser. Birds whose odd beauty seems to fly in the face of functionality, the bird equivalent of art for art's sake. There are birds so needlessly complicated, they put one in mind of the ancient creatures found at the bottom of the sea, the ones allowed to develop their bizarre biologies free from the evolutionary pressures faced by those of us on the surface. Gamble's quail is such a bird. Turning the page of the field guide to find it staring back at me, I was transfixed. It looked like a jumble of spare parts salvaged from a half dozen other birds and tacked together with little consideration for order or good taste. It was a patchwork of shapes and colors wholly unrelated to one another, yet somehow in harmony with each other. The work of some mad quilting genius. Gambles is the second largest of the New World quail, 11 inches tall and pleasantly pear-shaped. Its chest is gray, flanked on each side by rufous wings streaked with white. Its belly is tan with a large black patch like a total non-sequitur sitting at its center. The male's face is a black mask outlined by sharp white lines that seem drawn on with a broad-tipped felt pen. Its chestnut crown matches its wings giving it the nickname Redhead. 
And to top it all off, a ridiculous teardrop-shaped plume spouts from its forehead like an apostrophe. It looks like nothing else. Yet for all its oddity, Gambles earns its genus name, Calipepla, from the Greek meaning beautifully adorned. It is a remarkably strange and remarkably handsome bird, and as I packed my binoculars, I hoped desperately to see one. Thanks to the time change, I woke well before the alarm in our vacation rental outside Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, just after the early summer sun. I stumbled out to the kitchen to make coffee, trying not to disturb the rest of the house on their first morning of vacation. The kitchen led through sliding glass doors onto a small back deck, and as I rooted through unfamiliar drawers for a scoop, I noticed movement on the ground outside. Struggling with the lock and no longer concerned with the racket I was making, I threw open the door in time to see the tail end of what had to be a quail disappear around the corner of the house. Abandoning my need for caffeine, I bounded to the front door and out onto the dirt yard, hoping I hadn't missed my opportunity. There they were, only a little disturbed by my arrival. Not one, not two, eight gambles quail, mother and father with a half dozen offspring, a full bevy strutting in a line across the front yard. I could not believe my luck. Overjoyed, I watched as this mythical bird from the pages of the guidebook bobbed into my life in flesh and feathers, an incredible phenomenon that one birder has named the unicorn effect. Here was my very own herd of unicorns. The red head, the black mask, the absurd tufts bouncing through the scrub in the first rays of the sun, they were truly beautifully adorned, and I was ecstatic to have them all to myself in this moment, my first life bird before 7 a.m. I watched them strut around the yard a while until... Without warning or fanfare, they ran single file into some heavier scrub and disappeared up the hill. With the energy of this incredible sighting, I decided to continue down the block. Someone else could make the coffee. I heard some rustling in the undergrowth at the neighbor's place and jogged down to investigate. To my astonishment, it was another bevy of quail, only six this time, but much closer. I laughed at the patterns they cut in the dirt the young ones skittishly bumping along behind their parents. They poked in and out of the neighbor's brush pile until their cautious parent decided they had enough of the large predator looming over their chicks, and they took off into the shadows. Before I made it another 20 yards, a third family of quail crossed the street in front of me. At the end of the following block, another on our way to my wife's grandmother's later that morning, I pointed out Gamble's quail along the side of the road to her disinterested family. And when we crossed the street to visit her aunt, there was another line of apostrophes nodding through the dust. Everywhere we went, Gamble's were thick on the ground. After a while, I stopped lifting my binoculars to trace the white pen lines on their faces. Then, finally, as we arrived at a nature preserve late in the week, I did not even lift my head when my wife said, Quail. Four days after that first breathtaking glimpse of the bird, I was over the quail. This movement, familiar to many birders, is the journey from life bird to trash bird, and it can take as little as an afternoon. The thrill of finding a new species is first tempered and then extinguished with frequent repeated sightings. Trashbird is shorthand for a species whose ubiquity quickly makes it invisible. 
birds so common they can be ignored. It is a term of some controversy for its candor. Some birders only use trash bird for invasive species who lack natural predators and thus multiply at unnatural and exponential rates, making them irritatingly common. Think European starling. Others use trash bird for the species found most frequently in urban environments, the ones who have adapted to and thrive on the waste created by human civilization. Pigeons come to mind, as do those little sparrows you find picking through the garbage in the parking lot of any strip mall in America. They're called house sparrows, a species introduced from England by a well-meaning fan of Shakespeare who wanted to populate the new world with every bird mentioned by the bard. But then, who cares? They're trash birds. There are, of course, more high-minded birders who don't use the term at all. I'm suspicious of them. When I find them along the trail studying a northern cardinal or a tufted titmouse, remarking on it as if I care, I'd like to believe it's all for show, that they are performing their principled equanimity for my benefit, refusing to play favorites to teach me some kind of lesson. But they seem so sincere, so earnest, so into that damn cardinal. Is it possible they really don't feel my contempt for the familiar? I wish I could blame birding for my cynicism, but I suspect you bird the way you are. I bird cynical because I am cynical. I see trash birds everywhere I turn. People so familiar and steady in my life I've come to take them for granted. Situations so intransigent I choose to ignore them. The headlines that used to hurt are expected, not worth a second look. A shooting, a climate report, poverty, racism, war... I've seen it too many times before, and I, I can't understand the people who are able to marshal true outrage in the face of things that are so common. How do they keep up the energy? Each week I drive by a man who stands all day at a certain intersection asking for money. He has dark, curly hair, a bulbous nose, and in winter his cheeks are windburned, almost frostbitten. He has a slow, bouncy walk as he moves from car to car over the course of the red light. Every time he makes the same motion, comes to the driver's side window, and without saying a word, he gestures toward his mouth with four fingers, meaning food. For weeks, even months, I would act out looking for money that I knew wasn't there. I would mouth, sorry. I would feel some pang of guilt. Now I just shake my head, try to cut him off before he signs to me, before he can come to my window. One of the joys of birding is to recognize a bird by its gis, general impression of size and shape. The gis of a bird is hard to put into words, less a list of identifiable features and more a feeling, a fleeting sense of the bird that strikes you even at a glance or from a distance or in bad light. It is a great satisfaction to ID a bird by its gis, to know it after only an instant and then to confirm your suspicion with a better look. It's fun to see movement high in a tree or a silhouette backlit on a wire or a flash of color through a thicket and to know it without ever raising your binoculars. I'm a good enough birder to sometimes not need to look. I have learned just enough birding to make me dangerous, enough to arrogantly ignore cardinals and titmice and cynically toss around terms like trash bird. But to become a great birder, 
To become the birder I would like to be, I will have to get good enough to look anyway. The January after that trip to New Mexico, I went on an Audubon field trip to St. Mark's Wildlife Refuge in the Florida Panhandle. The target for the day was ducks. I had been birding for almost a year, but hadn't yet experienced these winter migrants. Over the course of an eight-hour day, I saw 13 new species. Before taking up this hobby, I'm not sure I knew there were two species of ducks. Toward the end of the trip, we stopped at yet another pond, but it didn't look like there was much going on. The possibility of adding another life bird was pretty low, and I'd gotten satisfying looks at all the usual suspects. At first glance, this final pond seemed to be almost empty, a half dozen or so teal amid the hundreds we had already found. So after a few minutes of scanning, I put my binoculars down and started shifting my weight back and forth on tired feet, thinking it was about time to head home. The leader of the trip was using his spotting scope to scan the pond and now announced that he had found a few glossy ibis. I politely ignored him, assuming he must be talking to some of the less experienced birders, those without my 11 months of practice. Anyone who has spent even minimal time looking at birds in Florida has gotten an eyeful of ibis. They are odd-looking things with long, curved bills and stilt-like legs for wading. There are two varieties ever present in the state. The white ibis has a body to match its name with a neon pink face and ice blue eyes. The other, the glossy, looks brown until the light hits its feathers and you see the purple-green iridescence for which it is named. A glossy ibis is a beautiful bird, but you can certainly find them in parking lots. It was not the northern pintails or common golden eye we had seen earlier. I had spotted the glossies in my own scan across the lake and probably mumbled their name to myself as I kept moving. I was not interested enough to take another look at them in the scope, even if they were the only birds we were seeing. I put my bins down and struck up a conversation with one of my fellow birders who seemed equally unimpressed. Behind me, our leader was still talking about the ibis, but now a note of curiosity had crept into his voice. Wait a minute, he said. Someone come take a look at this bird. I remained skeptical, but interested enough to cross back to the scope. Look at the one in the middle, he said. I did. Glossy ibis. Check. Do you notice anything different about him? No. Everything I saw told me this was a glossy. I hardly needed to look, and I wasn't sure why this great birder wasn't as certain as I was. Look again, he said. Check out his face. It's lighter than the others, pink with white, and it has a red eye. I looked at him in disbelief. Then I lowered my eye back into the scope for another unnecessary look. And then I saw it, faint at a distance of 100 yards, yet unmistakable. There where I had assumed were three glossy ibis were now two glossy ibis and something else, something new. A Florida rarity, the white-faced ibis, a miracle, a transformation from trash bird to life bird, something new springing forth while my eyes were trained on old things. Someday I hope to be the kind of birder who gives every glossy ibis a second look. 
not only because the ibis might turn out to be something more unusual, but because I understand that each glossy in itself holds an unexpected miracle. Someday I hope to be the kind of person who experiences each moment as a gift of grace, a fresh surprise at which to wonder. The kind of person who experiences each new injustice as an obscene affront and who expects that it can and will be righted. I want to become the kind of person who continues to look for signs of hope, even in lives that continue to present disappointment, even in my own life. I want to shed my weariness at everything I've seen before and take another look. That is it for this issue. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to keep up with Scout and Birdie, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us between issues by liking us on Facebook or following us on Instagram and Twitter. Be sure to go to scoutandbirdie.com and check out Roni Packer's vibrant yellow artwork. You can also flip through the full digital issue there, learn more about each of the artists and how you can keep up with them. If you'd like to submit to be in a future issue of Scout and Birdie, you can go to scoutandbirdie.com and click on the submission tab. There you'll see our upcoming themes as well as how to submit your work to us. We'd love to see what you're working on. I'm Jennifer Keel, and we'll see you next time with issue 24, Better Half. Bye!